You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Laura Weber Davis, co-hosting today with Chuck Wilbur, a former WDET news director and longtime public policy consultant. Stephen will be back next week. Chuck, I'm happy you're here with me today. Good to be with you, Laura. So Republicans pitched voters uh, last night on their economic policies during the second day of the GOP National Convention. Sort of. Well, at least that was the theme of the night. Make America work again. Can proposed tax cuts and trade restrictions bring more middle-class voters under the Republican tent? We didn't hear a whole lot about the economy last night, save for a couple speeches. And no real mention of NAFTA, which Donald Trump has referenced several times. Um, And here's House Speaker Paul Ryan, one of the few people who touched on the state of the economy last night. The problem here is very simple. There is a reason people in our country are disappointed and restless. If opportunity seems like it's been slipping away, that's because it has. And liberal progressive ideas have done exactly nothing to help. Wages never seem to go up. The whole economy feels stuck. And millions of Americans, millions of Americans, middle class security is now just a memory. We've asked uh, Dean Baker, the co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, to join us this morning to help us better understand Trump economics. Uh, Dean, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thanks for having me on. I want to set the scene before we get into the specifics of the Trump economic agenda. Many analysts, when they look at the electoral map for the 2016 election, believe that the only path to victory for Donald Trump would be to coalesce voters in the American Rust Belt, running perhaps from Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, and to form those voters into the basis of a new Republican majority. In part, that stems from an analysis that Trump is not going to be a viable candidate in some of the more diverse states that Democrats have recently put in the win column, states like Colorado or Florida. But it also stems from the belief that Trump's particular brand of economics has an appeal to white working class voters that goes beyond anything the Republican Party has offered them in the past. Dean, if you could help us understand what what is the Trump economic agenda, and then we'll talk about how we think it relates to that political constituency. Well, there are different parts of it. I mean, you know, first off, just to be clear, he hasn't put a lot on the table in terms of concrete plans. So he's yelled, you know, he said he wants to contain immigration, you know, deport, you know, the people, undocumented workers. Um, he wants to put up his wall. He wants to have, you know, he's going to threaten China and Mexico with tariffs. He hasn't been very concrete on a lot of things, but, you know, the two points I'll I'll emphasize here. One, he has put out a tax cut plan or tax proposal, if you like, um, that does call for large tax cuts. And that's kind of a traditional Republican plan, actually, because it's, you know, big tax cuts oriented overwhelmingly towards higher end people. The part that's likely to attract working class people is he has talked about trade. And that's been different than most Republicans. He's been saying, you know, the U.S. has gotten bad deals. We have a large trade deficit. It's cost people jobs. And there's a lot of truth to what he's saying in the sense that there's large sectors of the U.S. workforce, particularly those without a college degree, who have been hurt by trade over the last two or three decades, uh, particularly in the last uh, 15 years. We saw a huge increase in our trade deficit. And, you know, Trump's saying he's going to do something about it. It's, again, not that clear 
what he would do. He's talked about putting on tariffs on uh, China and Mexico. Um, that would reduce our imports. Surely there'd be response. Um, it's not, you know, he, he hasn't been very concrete on what he wants to do about trade, but he has correctly identified a problem because there's, there's little doubt most economists today, I think, would agree because there's been very good research on this issue in the last decade or so, showing that substantial segments of the workforce have been hurt by trade, and, you know, raising that as an issue, um, you know, he's right to raise it as an issue, I'll just say. Is there much difference between Trump's take on trade and the message that Bernie Sanders ran on in the primaries? Well, it's, you know, Trump has framed this largely as, you know, we're, we're going to beat up on, you know, China and Mexico that, you know, they've gotten, you know, they've gotten the better of us. And, you know, it's kind of an us against China, us against Mexico. I think Sanders has been a little more sophisticated in saying that, you know, look, we have U.S. corporations that relocate to China, relocate to Mexico um, and other developing countries. And it's not it's not, you know, again, I'm, you know, perhaps reading a little bit into Senator Sanders' position, but it's not a question of the U.S. versus China, that, you know, China ripped us off, China got a good deal, we got a bad deal. Basically, when we see our trade deficit with China, a very large chunk of that is U.S. corporations producing in China. General Electric, you know, other U.S. companies moved operations to China, exporting back to the U.S. It's also companies like Walmart that realizing a competitive advantage by arranging a low-cost supply chain in China and other developing countries. So it's not so much a question of U.S. versus China as a question of the interest of working people versus the interest of the corporations that take advantage of low-cost imports. Now, Hillary Clinton has shifted her position on TPP, the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, um, and has tried to reposition herself for the general election. Um, To what degree do you think she's vulnerable on the trade issue? Well, historically, you know, she, you know, again, you don't know whether it's fair to line her with, uh, you know, her husband's administration, but, you know, NAFTA was uh, a Bill Clinton priority, and, you know, Bill Clinton saw that as one of his big victories. Um, Whether that's her policy or not, I, you know, couldn't speak to that. But in any case, you know, insofar as she identifies with her husband's administration, um, you know, she has to take credit, blame, however one puts it, on NAFTA. the TPP, uh, again, that was negotiated largely under her watch uh, as, you know, Secretary of State. So she's now saying she's opposed to Trans-Pacific Partnership. But, you know, it's understandable people may question the extent to which that's genuine opposition and that she could be accounted on as an opponent of that and similar trade deals were she to be in the White House. Dean Baker is our guest right now. He's co-director for the Center for Economic and Policy Research. We're talking about the economy, the Republicans' approach to the economy. It's something that the Republican Party so far has felt like they can skewer the Democrats on, that there is a overall sense that the economy is not doing well. Regardless of um, jobs, the picture the picture for jobs has looked pretty good over the past few years, but there is a sense that things are not good. Um Josh is in Detroit. Josh is on the phone with us. Welcome to the program. Hi, good morning. Yeah, what 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 do you feel about how the Republican Party is approaching the economy? Yeah, um, so in perhaps it's related to the economy and then just the convention as a whole. I, I sort of feel that the Republican Party and the Trump campaign are missing a real opportunity to uh, tap into the populism that brought Trump uh, to where he is and brought Bernie Sanders to where he, he got to um, with, this, with this very anti-Hillary uh, derisive campaign. Um, it seems to me that they could put a few more people on that 
huge, huge stage that's feeling that so or that so many people are are watching, who who bring a message that uh, really resonates with the the larger populist roots that that seem to be evident in this election. Yeah, Josh, thank you for the call, um, Dean. What do you make of that? Is there is there room left, uh, you know, to be filled by the Trump campaign here in that regard? Well, you know, he has used a lot of populist rhetoric, and you know, clearly that explains uh, much of his appeal. I think the question you know, that uh, Josh raised, you know, it's a very serious one: is he committed to that? And you know, I think anyone who is trying to take his campaign seriously, you know, would say, okay, you know, what, you know, you're in the White House, what are you going to do? Are you going to pursue a populist agenda? I mean, you know, I mentioned in passing, his tax plan is classic, you know, business Republican, because the people get far and away the biggest benefits are, are the very wealthy. Uh, there was an analysis here from the Tax Policy Center that's nonpartisan, does very good work by, I think, most people's, uh, you know, uh, assessment. They conclude that the top one-tenth of one percent would average $1.3 million a year in savings under his tax plan. Um, you know, so this is classic kind of, you know, conservative business Republican. So it's, it's a little peculiar, you know, to say, okay, I'm a big populist, and then at the same time I'm proposing a tax plan that's going to have, you know, really just huge tax breaks for the wealthiest people in the country. Yeah. He's created kind of a strange space as well for other Republicans who are campaigning, because I, I noticed they have to sort of support him, but also tiptoe around the issue of whether or not they are into a, a free market or a trade agreement. And they, there is a, a, seems to be a lot of discomfort among down-ticket Republicans trying to address this issue. What have you been seeing as far as that's concerned, and, and how do they make up that difference, Dean? Well, it is a really huge problem because, you know, he's, you know, he, he's been very clear in saying he doesn't like the trade deals we've been negotiating over the last quarter century. And most of the support for those deals has come from the Republican side. So even, you know, I was mentioning before, President Clinton, of course, got NAFTA through, but he got overwhelmingly through with Republican votes. And, you know, the same has been true if you look at the uh, vote on fast-track authority for the Pacific, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That was, again, overwhelmingly Republican votes. A very small number of Democrats crossed over. So the Republicans have, in the last few decades, been associated very much with these trade deals. And now if... You know, you're going to have your presidential candidate saying, no, these were really bad deals. It makes it very difficult for the, for these candidates. There's no doubt about it. It might make it difficult for the Republicans, Dean, but w- what about the Democrats? I mean, it seems like the, the Democratic Party has never been positioned in a way to be able to be attacked from the left on trade from a Republican candidate. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's a striking issue. I think the Democrats have played kind of a cutesy game here where, you know, I was saying before, it was mostly Republican votes. Uh, you know, I, I'm not inside on this, you know, so I don't have, you know, I'm not a confidant of, you know, Nancy Pelosi, you know, the, the leader of the Democrats in the House and, you know, the other leadership. But I think it's pretty clear what has gone on is that there's been negotiations where they say, how many votes do you need? And, you know, do you need 10 votes? Do you need 20 votes? Our members don't want to vote for these deals, but, you know, they're ten, you know we could get those votes. 
So the Democrats have given the appearance of being opposed to these deals, but at the end of the day, they acquiesced in it. And I think part of the story is that they're both looking to the same group of funders. Uh, if you look at how the Trans-Pacific Partnership was negotiated, you had, uh, I think it was 25, I won't swear by that number, but it was roughly 25 working groups. These were essentially the industry groups, so they're going to negotiate rules on, on telecommunications. So who do they have there? Well, they have Comcast there. They have, you know, the other big telecommunication companies. They're going to negotiate on pharmaceuticals. They have Pfizer there. They have Merck there. So this is basically, you know, a corporate pinata. And the reason for that, of course, is that they're hoping to get campaign contributions from these corporations. So that's kind of a bipartisan story. And in a lot of ways, the Democrats, and of course, President Obama is the president negotiating this. So the Democrats are in this pretty much as much as the Republicans. Let's go back to the phones here. Albert is in Detroit. Albert, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks. Uh, smart guy you got there. He's calling like it is. I appreciate that. Maybe he should be in office. Maybe not. <laughs> but uh, I do find it interesting. That, uh, the Republicans, the way they think is just ridiculous to me. I mean, first of all, yeah, Bush in office for eight years, right? Five of those eight years, this guy was controlled all three branches of office. And told the whole world, you know what? I don't, I don't have to deal with immigration right now or anything else. Let the next guy have it. And then they turn around and have a war that lasts for 10 years. And the economy went down the drain. Well, what are people thinking about? These people, what the hell are they doing? And they never did. Right. That's my, that's my, my take on it. What do you think? A- Albert, I appreciate the phone call. Dean, there is a lot of finger pointing that goes on about who's responsible for what. And how much of this can we really lay at the feet of one party or another? As far as recovering from even the recession, it was, you know, it, it was such a dramatic shift over the past 15 years in what the economy has looked like. And as I said, there's so much political finger pointing going on. Is is it possible to, uh, for one party to take credit for devastation more than another? Well, it, clearly both parties were involved. But if you just look at the timing. Um, the collapse occurred under President Bush's watch, you know, so was that, that's why, you know, I was watching uh, Speaker Ryan last night, he's going on about people have lost hope, and go, well, you know, and he's acting as though they have new ideas, and go, well, this was, you know, a Republican president who had big tax cuts, you know, that, you know, very similar to what Trump is proposing, you know, not identical, but the same sort of story. And that put us in that situation. Now, that wasn't the only thing. I'm not going to get up here and say, you know, oh, you know, President Bush's tax cut gave us, you know, the the economic collapse in 2007, 2008. We had a huge housing bubble that was due to really bad regulation. Democrats acquiesced in that bad regulation. So I give them plenty of blame as well. But, you know, I just always say, let's imagine the shoe were on the other foot. Let's imagine, you know, a Democrat had been in the White House for two terms. The economy had fallen to pieces, you know, 2008. Um, what would we be saying? Well, we'd probably have the Democrats be blamed for this, you know, for the rest of our lives. So, you know, there is blame to go around, but I do have to say, I think most of this here does rest on President Bush. And I will say, you know, with President Obama, I've criticized him many, many times. I'd like to have seen him be more aggressive in pushing for stimulus packages. But the reality was he faced a Republican Congress that was quite explicitly obstructionist every step along the way. There were, I think, two Republican votes for a stimulus package, um, zero on the uh, the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, he tried, you know, to my view, it was painful how much he bent over backwards to try to compromise on, on these and other measures. So, you know, the fact that we haven't seen a stronger recovery you know, I'm not happy about that, nor is, you know, most of the public, uh, rightly. But to to say that that's President Obama's fault, as opposed to obstruction from the Republican Congress, or at least shared by the obstruction of the Republican Congress, that's a little far-fetched. 
Dean Baker, let me take you back where we began. If there is a thesis that the key to the Trump campaign success would be this Rust Belt strategy, do you think that strategy could actually work in this election? I think it's possible. I mean, if I had to place a bet, you know, I'd go with, you know, what most of the polls, most of the experts have said, that, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton ends up in the White House. But I do think there is a plausible story that, you know, President, uh, that uh, Donald Trump could make this populist pitch, tell the people in Pennsylvania and Ohio, possibly Michigan, although it's a longer shot, you know, look, things have not worked out well for you. Hillary Clinton doesn't have anything to offer, and I'm going to be the guy to set things right. You know, clearly that's what he's going to try. Again, my my guess is that it doesn't succeed, but if he has a path to the White House, that's it. Dean Baker is the co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington. Dean, we thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me on. Coming up, we've heard very little about how Donald Trump feels about the future of education. We'll talk about what we know next, and we want to hear from you. 313-577-1019. Bernie Sanders made a big deal about education in his campaign. Now that he's out, would you be willing to vote for Donald Trump if he says the right things as far as higher education is concerned? We want to hear from you. 313-577-1019. 